happy Thanksgiving week, everybody. This is Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast, and I'm thankful for everyone who tunes into this podcast. We really appreciate everyone who has contributed to the church over the years. And if you like what you hear and you'd like to help North Shore Vineyard out, go to northshorevineyard.org and you can click on donate and help keep making this thing possible. So I'm talking about gratitude today in this message. This is entitled, What a Wonderful World. And you may be thinking, ah, I've heard about gratitude before. I'll skip this episode. Don't skip it because we're not only talking Louis Armstrong, but we're talking brain science, quantum physics, all kinds of fun stuff. And some of my favorite words from the Apostle Paul from Philippians 4. So this is called What a Wonderful World. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. So this is uh, Thanksgiving week, and I have to tell you, after being in ministry in the church for, I don't know, gosh, it's been like 17 years now I've been doing stuff inside the church, I've really come to love Thanksgiving because it's one of the few holidays where I don't have to plan some service. It's not a religious holiday. (laughs) Like when it's Christmas, we never travel because we're always doing a Christmas Eve service, or when it's Easter, we've always got that. So there's always this sense of when it's Christmas or Easter, I'm always, I always feel like I'm on and I can't really just settle down and relax. Thanksgiving is like, ah, there's no pressure. We're not doing a Thanksgiving service or anything. And how cool is it that we live in a country where we just all take a break to be thankful? I think that's one of the best holidays that has ever been invented. Like, we're just going to stop and hang out and eat some food, watch some football, and be thankful. We, we ought to have holidays like that a few times a year. But earlier this week, a friend of mine who is a, a priest texted me. He says, I'm curious, what is your favorite song that expresses gratitude and thanksgiving? And I thought about it for a couple of minutes because it's weird. We don't have thanksgiving. There's not a genre of thanksgiving songs, right? And, you know, I, I went on Spotify and I started looking up songs, you know, thank you for letting me be myself again. That's a good one. Sly on the Family Stone. Dido. I want to thank you. I'm not going to sing that one. Okay. But it didn't take me long to land on the one that I think is the best Thanksgiving song ever. And that is Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. We're going to get back to that song in a minute, but I want to, I want to read the lyrics to you. You got them in your, in your uh, bulletin a little bit further down. Well, I'm going to sing it. I'm going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it like Louis. <laughs> no one could. I ain't going to attempt that. Listen to these words. I see trees of green and red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? What they're really saying is, I love you. I hear babies crying, and I watch them grow. 
But they'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Don't you already feel a little bit better just hearing those words? It's like, yeah, this is a wonderful world. <laughs> Today I want to talk about gratitude. Uh, because I think gratitude, more than any other activity that you can engage in, has the power to transform your life. It has the power to open you up to God, to the Spirit moving in you and in other people. It has the power to help you see the wonders and the beauty all around you that most of us miss. You know, as, as I look at these words of Louis Armstrong, you know, the, the most important word in this song is I see. You know, you can walk around all day and not see anything except your smartphone. <laughs> you can be stuck in your own stinking thinking all day and you don't see anything beautiful going on around you at all. There is something about gratitude that involves attention, awareness, and when we move into gratitude, all of a sudden our eyes are opened. It's not like the world has changed, but our perspective on the world has opened up. And now that which was right in front of us becomes sacred and holy. So I want to talk about gratitude today. Before I talk about gratitude, I want to talk about a few things that are way above my head, but that's okay because everything I talk about here, I talk about God. I mean, so uh, I'm going to talk about some things from the realm of science uh, I am a big fan of sciences, I've share, shared with y'all. And so I want to talk about brain science first, and then we'll move to quantum physics, and then we'll work our way to the writings of Paul in Philippians chapter 4. We'll see if I can pull all this off, connect all these dots. <laughs> I have been reading one of the most fascinating books that I've read in a very long time by this guy named Ian McGilchrist. He's a psychiatrist, brain scientist, philosopher over in the UK. He's also a Christian. And he wrote this book called The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. Now, this book is just basically about how the two different hemispheres of your brain perceive the world in very different ways. They understand reality in very different ways. And, and in many ways, both sides of your brain are kind of at war with each other, trying to you know, figure out what's going on. But when it comes to the right brain... The right, I'm going to say right brain because saying right hemisphere all the time is a lot, but it's not a separate brain. And by the way, all that I'm saying, you use both hemispheres all the time. But there are some unique things that go on with right brain versus left brain. Right brain uh, experiences reality as reality is unfolding to us. So right now, your experience right here in this room comes first through the right hemisphere of your brain. You experience the world in real time through your right brain. Right brain sees the world in big picture. It sees big things. It connects the dots between divergent uh, kinds of things. The, the, the right brain understands the world in terms of relationships. Right brain understands metaphors. If you have a stroke and it, it shuts down a good chunk of your right brain, you may still, you'll still have language and you may still be able to go around through the world, but you, you cease to understand context, relationships, Metaphors, because the right brain is all about relationships, context, metaphors. Now you move over to the left brain, your left brain is focused. It is particular. So, for instance, a bird 
flies down from a tree and it wants to pick up a kernel of corn on the ground, that bird uses the left hemisphere of its brain to identify that piece of corn from pebbles or other stuff on the ground and focus in on it and go for it. But the right hemisphere of that bird's brain helps it figure out where it is in the world and be on alert to everything that is happening around it, particularly a predator that might be coming in to pounce on it. Now, the left brain doesn't understand the world in terms of relationships. It doesn't understand metaphors. It is utilitarian. It sees the world in terms of what is useful. And the, the, the left brain does not experience reality as it is happening, but experiences reality in terms of representations. So if you think about it this way, as you experience things in your life, your left brain is helping build maps and models for, to help you navigate reality. And that's a very useful thing. But kind of the point that Ian McGilchrist is making in, in his book is that in the Western world, we have been so biased towards left brain ways of thinking, and it's been very successful for inventing industry, but we become so biased to that that we are, in, in a sense, the left brain should be serving the right hemisphere because that's the way biologically we're set up. A lot of people think that left brain's in charge, but no, really, when you look at it from brain science, the right hemisphere is actually in charge, but it is almost as if in the Western world, the servant is beginning to overthrow the master. And it is in the right hemisphere of the brain that we really experience the best things in life. The best things in life, as I've said many occasions, are not things, right? I came across that wisdom in a truck stop bathroom, and it's like, yeah, amen. <laughs> the best things in life aren't things. The best things in life, love, relationships, beauty, art, creativity, like that stuff that's intangible that you can't quantize and you can't turn into some kind of formula. That's actually the best stuff. But so often we forget the best stuff because we want to collapse everything down into a model of it. And we end up mistaking the map for the terrain, in a sense, or mistaking the model for actual reality itself. Now, I want to move from brain science for a moment into quantum physics. <laughs> and I'm just very quickly going to touch on quantum physics. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I'm fascinated with quantum physics. Quantum physics is interesting because in the quantum world, regular laws of physics seem to break down. Particle can be in two places at once, what's known as superposition, or you can have two subatomic particles that are entangled and they could be in different parts of the universe and communicate instantly. And it's just a crazy world. But what's interesting about the quantum world is that quantum particles exist in a state of a wave until we observe them, until we measure them. And you can go on YouTube, there's the famous double slit experiment. You can type double slit experiment. There's some videos that explain it a lot better than I do. But suffice it to say, light will act like a wave until you actually put a detector down and start to measure the light. And then all of a sudden, the whole wave of light is collapsed down into something particular. And physicists don't know why this is. There's a lot of speculation. Some people speculate perhaps there's something between consciousness and observing something that perhaps consciousness is more involved with things than we understand right now. I don't really care at the moment. 
That's not my point. I think it's more helpful as a metaphor. Because when you look in the quantum realm at a wave, a wave represents all the possible places that a particle could be. And when we observe that wave, we collapse all those possibilities into something particular. And I think this is a good metaphor for the right brain versus left brain. In your right brain, you're, you're open to all the possibilities. You are seeing the big picture, everything coming at you. But then in the left brain, we collapse all the possibilities into something that we can manage, something that we can use. We make a map. We make a model. And it's very helpful to the point that we actually start mistaking the map for reality itself. Um, and so oftentimes, I, I think this actually happens in so many areas of life. We are going along and we construct a map, we construct a model that helps us deal with things, but after a while, we start mistaking the actual map for the terrain. And I'll share an example of how this worked out in my own life. I've, I've shared this story a few times, but I'm going to share it again. Um, back in 2014, I had this idea, which seemed like such a great idea at the time. I was going to use Facebook to kind of host a dialogue about God and religion and I thought, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm, I've got so many friends who are from so many different backgrounds, some people who believe in God, some people who aren't. What, what if I actually offered a forum where we could all talk about the most important questions that people have and learn from one another? <laughs> because in my life, that has been the case. Like, I've learned so much by sitting down and having conversations with people that are different from me or, or even believe different from me. Like, it's, it's changed me. How about we do something like that on Facebook? Silly Crispin. <laughs> Over the next few months, that did not happen. <laughs> I got a lot of comments. I mean, there were some of these threads that went on over 200 comments, but most of it was people accusing other people, questioning their motivation, arguing defensiveness, calling me names that nobody has ever called me to my face. And saying things about me that nobody's ever said about me in front of my face, but it's something about social media, perhaps because it's disconnected from actual face-to-face -face relationship, it seems to embolden the worst aspects of our personality. But what's crazy about it, in, in spite of all that, I, it, it started, I became obsessed with it. I mean, like, I'm checking Facebook every five minutes, like, I can't believe they just said this. I got to respond to this. So it, it elevated my sense of self-importance as well. And there was one point where a good friend of mine, this guy had played in my band that I had back in the 90s for six years, traveled on the road with me and everything. And he was like coming at me, swinging and just accusing me of stuff. And I'm like, dude, you're my friend. Like we spent six years traveling together. And so finally I said, dude, can we just go grab lunch? He's like, yeah. So we went over to Sweet Daddy's Barbecue. We broke bread and brisket and... Um, which is a good way to break through. And immediately, from the moment we sat down, we started seeing each other as human beings again. Immediately, we couldn't question each other's motives. Immediately, I realized that even though we come down in different places in our beliefs about God and the Bible and stuff, 
that he was really going after God, and he, he recognized that about me, that we both wanted the same things, and maybe we ended up in different places, but we were reconciled. We were reconciled. And it was a beautiful thing. And then coming out of that, I was like, you know, I started realizing that I had traded in the world outside my window for this construct in my mind. Because look, when it comes to God, folks, we've all got, ain't nobody got God figured out. I know. So if you think you got God figured out, that's, that's the first foolish mistake you're going to make. I think that's been some of my frustration. I've studied, I've read tons of theology in the last 17 years, and I've learned a lot from theology, but, but, at the end of the day, I think theology can get a little arrogant sometimes. Like, you're gonna re- you really think you're going to come up with some theological formula to explain God. Really. Good luck with that. <laughs> and so I wrote a song coming out of that experience called World Inside My Mind. And these were the lyrics. I've got all of my stances on the issues of today. I've got an argument to argue if you stand in my way. I got me this feeling that I'm going to make you feel. I got my accusations loaded and resolve made of steel. I got my facts and figures and my strongest emotion. Gonna stand up for the truth with a zealot's devotion. Gonna preach to the choir. Gonna rile up the herd. I've got this pot of feelings that's about to get stirred. It's pruning hooks to spears and plowshares into swords. Gonna fight me a battle with razor-sharp words. It's artificial living, but it just feels so right. Like the needle in the vein, waking the junkie's appetite. You see, I got to feed this monkey, got to keep him satisfied with pride and self-importance and malice on the side. I got to keep on talking, talking myself blind to the world outside my window for the world inside my mind. See, it's not that left or right brain ways of thinking, they both serve their purpose. But when we collapse the wave of possibilities into something narrow and hold on to it as if it is reality itself, we shut ourselves off from the most important things we can experience in God and in other people and in the world around us. We mistake the terrain for the map. This is one of the reasons why, over the last 10 years, I'm a big fan of the Bible. We teach on the Bible every week in here, but we haven't had a ton of Bible studies here at North Shore Vineyard in the last 10 years. Because I think oftentimes, Bible studies end up becoming a way that we just keep getting more details on our map without actually moving into an experience with God. And so we've done something this last year called the table. Instead of studying the Bible... We sit down at tables, we share a meal together, and then we have a contemplation on a passage, a teaching of Jesus, a parable, a psalm. We read it slowly, we listen to it, we read it again, we get quiet, we meditate on it, we invite the Spirit to speak something to us from the Word, uh, everybody. And then once we feel like there's something in that that resonates with us, then we have a conversation and we share with others. What's going on there? We're using the map to point us into the experience of God's spirit with one another. See, I've been around Christians a whole lot in the last 20 years who, 
instead of believing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that it's Father, Son, and Holy Bible. They hold up the Bible as if it is God itself. But that's a mistake. I think the Bible is like an atlas. It's like a book of maps. The Bible helps you figure out where you are in the terrain and helps you move towards God. But if you worship the maps and you never go into an experience with God, then it's useless. And you don't think that can happen? It can. Jesus told the Pharisees in the Gospel of John, he says, you search the scriptures diligently because you think the scriptures themselves give you life. And yet it is these scriptures who point to me, God incarnate, standing right in front of your face, and you can't see me. It is possible to be experts in the map and never move into the reality. It is possible to spend so much time working out the details of the map that we never actually move into an experience with God, and then it's profited us nothing. I read a a, a fascinating book a couple of years before we started this church um, called The Answer to How is Yes. Rather cryptic title by a guy named Peter Block. And Peter Block is a consultant for businesses and government agencies and nonprofits. And Peter Block said this. He said, one of the biggest mistakes that organizations and businesses make when they want to do something new, they want to do some new program, offer some new initiative, some new product, is they start asking the how questions way too early on in the process. Because how questions immediately collapse the wave of possibilities. When you start asking, you, you know, this is the thing we want to do. Well, how are we going to do it? Well, I don't know. It seems impossible. How much is it going to cost? It's going to cost more money than we have. How much time is it going to take? It's going to take more time than we want to spend on it. And immediately, instead of living in a world of possibilities where you're open to creativity and innovation, you've constricted everything to what you see and what you know and the boundaries which you can perceive. And by the way, as I've said on many occasions, none of us can see much. (laughs) None of us can know much. Peter Block says it's much better instead of asking how questions early on, to stick with the what and the why questions. You move, from, you move from the realm of utility into ultimate value. Because when you, when you ask the question, what is it that I want to do? <laughs> and why do I want to do it? That's some good questions. Because now, if you stick with those questions long enough and don't rush to, how are we going to make this happen? No, what is it we want to do and why do we want to do it? You stick with those questions long enough, you are going to drill down into values. Values. Like goodness. Love. Connection. Because if you, if you merely answer questions by how, you are likely to just come up with answers that are pragmatic or economical. And you may be successful. I can tell you, I've got several friends who were successful in starting businesses, but they they created businesses that made their life hell (laughs) because they didn't start with their values. They started with lesser values like money. You stick with what questions and why questions you get down to What is my unique gift to give to the world? What is it that God has put in us? What is it that we value? What is it that we can bring to humanity that makes this world a better place? And if you succeed in doing that, now you've not only created something that that is good for, for, for you, but it's good for the world. But that's living 
in a place of openness to the possibilities. Peter Block says, if you stick with the what and the why questions long enough, you may find that the how questions get answered along the way without ever even asking them. And they get answered in ways that you'd have never conceived of on the front side if you just started asking how questions. What is it that you want to do? And why the heck do you want to do it? See, I think those are questions that bring us out of a collapsed way of looking at reality and life that is constricted oftentimes by fear, by a fear of scarcity, by the ways that other people have done something, and they break us into a world of possibilities where we're open to new things, new ideas, new ways. Gratitude works in the same kind of way. You know, I had, a, I had my, my first roommate after I moved out of the house when I was in West Texas. Oh, Lord. Y'all remember when you first moved out of the house, you know, your first time living by yourself? Oh, Lord. That was, I, I don't know how I made it through that. I was like 18, 19 years old, and me and my friend Tim, we were living in this little apartment together. And, uh, you know, no parents telling us to clean things up. <laughs> and we got into a standoff over dishes in the sink at one point. And these dishes were gross. They were nasty. And they were piled up. And then, you know, somebody figures, well, I'll just pour some water in there. And then the water sat for a few weeks, you know. And then you just had this cesspool of gross stuff, you know. But I remember experiencing this with my best, he was my best friend, going back to childhood. Like, we, we loved hanging out together. But now it's like every time I saw him, I was aggravated. And then I wasn't just aggravated about the dishes. I was aggravated about the way he chewed food. I was aggravated about the kind of music he listened to. I was aggravated that, that, you know, when he wanted to get up in the morning. Like, pretty soon, I couldn't see anything else but what I was aggravated at. You experienced that before? We experience that with the people that are closest to us, right? It's the, it's the people that close. But the other side is, I can tell you, you know, most of the time we, we get into that aggravation with other people, by the way, because we're unhappy with something in, on the inside. So we just start projecting that stuff. But I find if I can actually sit down and start remembering what it is I like about this person, what's good about this person, it breaks me away from a collapsed way of looking at them. I've collapsed the wave of possibilities for their life into something negative and ugly. And then I can begin to see again the beautiful gifts within them. That's what Louis Armstrong is doing with A Wonderful World. He starts off by saying, I see, I see. You know, sometimes all it takes is just beginning to notice. Just go back in your backyard and see the trees, see the flowers, pay attention. Look at your wife and see her. Look at your husband, see him. Look at your kids and see them, not just as an aggravation. I mean, I love this last sign, you know, <laughs> last line. I hear babies cry and I watch them grow. And they'll, they're worth much more, they'll know much more than I'll ever know. How many times do we see babies crying is just an aggravation? We're not happy. Why are you crying? Why can't you just be happy? No. He starts off with 
contemplating the goodness of trees and flowers and rainbows and clouds and friends shaking hands. And by the time he gets down to a crying baby, he's like, that's a wonderful thing. It's not a burden. That's a sign of life. Breaking, that's, a want, that's, that's amazing. See, gratitude starts first by paying attention. Secondly, by becoming aware. And then by expressing thankfulness. And the moment we do that, we move out of this collapsed way of thinking into a world of beauty and wonder. I want to move on to the Bible now. (laughs) I love, I think this is one of the best passages in the Bible for gratitude. The Apostle Paul writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, in case you didn't hear me. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind Christ Jesus. He starts off by saying, rejoice in the Lord. That's, that's a way of expressing thanksgiving, by the way. Rejoicing in God. What we do in worship, singing about God, singing to God. We're rejoicing in God. We're talking about God's love, his faithfulness. But he says, if, if, you get, if you're feeling anxious, don't let the anxiety take control. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests. You know, this is a great habit to get into. Instead of just going to God with a list of, God, I need you to do this quick. I'm going down. Lord, you know, help me out. No, don't show up to God like that. Show up to God and say, God, I'm going to reflect over my life a little bit. All the times that you've come through. I'm going to reflect on your goodness. I'm going to reflect on the good gifts that you've given to me. I'm going to reflect on the things I love in this life. Spend five or ten minutes doing that. And you might even find that when it comes to your petitions, you don't even have to ask them anymore because you are so open to God and trusting God that now it's like, I don't even have to ask for this because I know God's got me. And, and, and here's what Paul says. The result of that is a peace that's bigger than your understanding. A peace that don't make any sense. People can be looking at your life and going, dude, you shouldn't be peaceful right now. <laughs> Have you seen how crazy things are in your life? No. I got peace. Like a river in my soul. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, you know what makes this, all this more impressive to me? It's not that Paul is just writing really helpful words here. Paul was writing these words in a Roman prison. And if you're looking at Paul from the outside, you're going, that dude, 
he's in hell. <laughs> I mean, this is awful. A Roman prison wasn't just a bad situation. It's like you had to rely on people outside the prison to bring you food because that wasn't included in the deal. A desperate situation. Paul could be executed by the Roman government any day. And he writes the book of Philippians, which is one of the most joyful, upbeat books in the entire Bible. See, the reality is Paul was putting into practice. The, he, he's just sharing with them the things that he's doing. He may look like he's in prison from the outside, but he is freer than 99% of the people on planet Earth today that are walking about freely. See, being a, you know, when I look at somebody like Paul, it's like, boy, that would talk about an easy way to become resentful and angry at God and life. And like, God, you know, I'm, 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 your, I'm your guy. Why am I in prison? This isn't fair. I thought you loved me. No, 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 no. Paul is in that cell. But it's not heaven. It's, it's not hell. It's been transferred, transformed into heaven. And the same thing that Paul's talking about here, it's available for every one of us. Paul didn't collapse all the possibilities into victimhood. He didn't collapse everything into just negativity and we need to boycott the Roman Empire. We need to have, you know, he, he didn't take this. Well, he didn't have social media. That's probably why he could say all this. If Paul lived in our world. He wouldn't be saying that. <laughs> See, what Paul's saying here is really what Louis Armstrong was saying. Think about what is good. Stop letting your mind be so collapsed into negative ways of thinking that are just really maps for reality. They're just constructs. And they may have served you to a certain point. Break out of that back into the wave of possibilities where God is, where you can see trees of green and red roses too. You can see them bloom for me and you. And you can truly think to yourself, what a wonderful world. See, this isn't, this isn't mere optimism here, people. This isn't glass half full or glass half empty. God is inviting us into a spacious place where we live in an experience of God's presence, where we live in an experience of beauty and connection and empathy and understanding. That's what we were made for, people. Yes, Utility is good and, and all that other stuff that the left side of the brain has to offer. If we let that thing keep ruling us, we live in a world that is narrow. The invitation today is to break out of that. This week, as we spend some time thinking about what we're thankful for, really spend some time thinking about the good. Maybe you turn off Facebook for a week. Oh, it's crazy talk. <laughs> Maybe we turn it off. Maybe we stop watching the reality TV show of impeachment. Maybe we stop arguing about all this other stuff. And we realize once again that we are in a wonderful, good place. And that we have something in our relationships with, uh, with one another which can't be bought or sold. Which transcends all that. Let's take these next few days to do that. We're going to close today by receiving communion today, together. And if this is your first time at North Shore Vineyard, this table is open to anybody who wants to move to Lord, towards the Lord. We have people down here who, when you come, they're going to offer you a piece of bread saying, this is the body of Christ broken for you. 
If you're in, mercy, in need of mercy today, eat this bread. And then we take the cup representing the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant. It's based on the best God can do, not the best we can do. <laughs> and as we do that, Jesus said, when you take this meal, remember, remember me, remember me. Let us take this meal in a place of thanksgiving. And as we do, I'm going to sing a little Louis Armstrong. Why don't you all stand? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Oh, you got it. Yeah. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Feel free to come up as do this song.